This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is Peter Bergen. Peter is one of the world's foremost experts on Osama bin Laden, on Al-Qaeda, on terrorism. He is CNN's national security analyst. He is a professor at Arizona State University's Center for the Future of War, and he is the author of the new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, adding to his already lengthy resume of books he has authored on the subject of terrorism and Osama Bin Laden in particular. You can find out more about him at peterbergen.com. You can follow him on Twitter at peterbergencnn. And now, without further ado, Peter Bergen. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to uh, uh, to be able to talk to you for a little bit. And as you can tell, if you can see, I have all your, you're surrounded by all your books as I have been for uh, most of the last 20 years as they've, as they've, as they've come out. So, uh, so thank you so much for, oh, well, thank you so much for dedicating so much time, energy, and effort to this study and adding so much to our understanding of terrorism in general, of course, Al-Qaeda, Bin Laden. Um, but uh, I want to just jump right in here. Uh, and there's a couple of things. In 1983, I think you make it a documentary in Pakistan about Afghan refugees escaping Soviet occupation. Then in 1993, yeah. I think you go to Afghanistan for the first time. 1997, you meet and interview Bin Laden. And then you travel to Pakistan in February of 2012 and are granted access to the compound where he's killed and go to that very room where friends of mine were that collected a lot of the documents that you use for your, your book. Um, and uh, shortly thereafter, it was destroyed. But before we get to all of that, 1983, like, are you 10 years old and you're making this documentary? Like, how are you doing a documentary in 1983? Well, I think I was 19 or 20. Wow. I was a student at university and I had two friends and they said, let's go and make this film about the Afghan refugees. And of course, we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, and I'd never been to a country like Pakistan and nor uh, so you know, in a way, because we knew we didn't know anything, it was actually good because we had no idea about what the problems would be. <laughs> um, and um, but we eventually the film, you know, we shot it on film, which shows how long ago this was. It was shot on 16 millimeter film. Um, and uh, but that's what got me interested in the Afghan kind of story. And what, what sparked that? Were you in university? Was it a class or was it was it a documentary filmmaking class or was it a foreign relations <laughs> class or what, what was it that sparked you guys to go do that? There's <laughs> two friends of mine, one of whom went on to become a pretty well-known producer, Barney Thompson, um, and another one, a friend of mine, George Case, um, and he he made a lot of documentary films. So, so we, we, we had no, you know, we weren't in a class, we just decided to do this, and, you know, we raised a little bit of money to go and do it, and, and we went and did it. No kidding. And then 10 years later, that's the first time where you actually go into Afghanistan. And at this point, are you a yeah. uh, a producer for is it it's CNN or BBC or who are you working for at this point? Yeah, uh, then I'm working for CNN. So that was a you know, whole different experience. In fact, I went with Peter Arnett, who at the time was the most famous correspondent in the world because it was shortly after the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and uh, Peter Arnett, of course, had bravely decided to stay in Baghdad despite mm -hmm. you know a lot of people saying you should leave because it was dangerous. Um, and so we went uh, with two other colleagues into Afghanistan. And, you know, for the younger listeners to this, um, you know, when you went to Afghanistan in 93, you were gone. <laughs> I mean, there was yeah. no. You're not text was, messaging back. You're not posting Instagram photos. 
<laughs> you're really gone. Uh, so, and you had no, and I took $60,000 in cash wow. uh, on my person going in, um, you know, back when, I mean, it's still a lot of money, but then it was like, yeah, because we, we had no idea what we were getting into it. We knew it was going to be many, 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 many weeks. And we knew, you know, there was no, like, you had to pay for everything in cash. And we knew so, and um, so we spent, it was a, the Civil War then was, was, was you know, really, really bad. Um, and, and, uh, it was like Mogadishu in the 90s, um, very like block to block fighting in Kabul. And it was my first experience of seeing anything remotely like this. And, um, you know, but well, the reason we went is the people who had bombed the Trade Center in February of 93 intended to bring it down. And many of them had actually trained in Afghanistan or had some link to the Afghan war. And it was the beginning of, uh, you know, our understanding. So we didn't, we were like uh, trying to, you know, feel what was this elephant like? And, and, and of course, we had no idea, but we knew there were these Arabs. We knew they were in Afghanistan. We knew that they were planning attacks elsewhere. We knew they'd attacked in the United States. We didn't know what the organization was. We didn't know who the leadership was. Um, and that's kind of what got me interested in bin Laden because three years after making that film, the State Department released a really quite useful two-page white paper about bin Laden publicly. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, maybe since since the attack on the Trade Center in '93 was pretty organized, and organizations have leaders. Maybe he is the leader. And then you go back uh, again. So this is '97. Now we jump ahead here, yeah. but uh, but I guess in that in that '93 one was that one of the most uh, uh, dangerous times for you as a journalist on the ground because of the unknown, or did you? Uh, I guess what was the closest call in all these times you've been to Pakistan and Afghanistan? Um, and I'll ask you specifically about getting to Bin Laden, which you talk about in in this book, and you talk about in your in Manhunt, and um, get just getting to him. It seemed like it was a yeah. lot. There are a lot of unknowns there, um, especially knowing what we know post nine eleven about some things that have happened to journalists. But what was the 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 most? Uh, I guess the sketchiest or the most the time when you were the most worried about security. The sketchiest was definitely 93 because the war, it, it was a very, very, very intense civil war. It wasn't like the war, there have been a civil wars in Afghanistan for 43 years now, even before the Soviets invaded. But this was, um, you know, there were no front lines. You didn't know where they were. Everybody was heavily armed. The prime minister at the time was shelling his own capital on a daily basis, which is kind of a first. Gulbuddin Hikmatcher, he's still around. Um, so you really had no idea. I, and also, I was completely inexperienced. I was with people who have had a lot of combat experience as journalists. Uh, so they knew what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing. And, yeah, I mean, since after 9-11, I embedded, like, multiple times. And, you know, sometimes that's really very boring uh, because you're in, there's just nothing happening. And sometimes that's, you know, there's, there's, it's less boring. But I, I think 93 was the time where, where it was the most dangerous because it was also like there was no, it wasn't really clear what was going on. Not that it's ever very clear in a, in a battle situation, but it was, it was very unclear. Um, and I, I don't claim it was like spectacularly dangerous, but it, you know, because the other thing, of course, is like it's only really dangerous when you get yourself into a situation where it becomes very dangerous. And, and you yeah, know, that is kind of the luck of the draw, as you know. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then in, in 97 though, you go back and how do you, you're still, I mean, you're not 
brand new at CNN, but you're still a, you're, you're a producer still at this point. You're still traveling with Peter Arnett, uh, who for yeah. those listening, got the Pulitzer back in, in Vietnam days. So he's been, he'd been around for a while. So you had quite the, the, the mentor at that, at that point. Um, yeah. And how do you make contact with um, with Bin Laden and his organization? I think it's someone in in London or Great Britain that you reach out to that's a spokesperson or a PR person in right. in '96, and then finally in March of '97 you actually get there. But how did that process from when you first met? How did you make contact first of all, and then how did it lead you into Afghanistan in March of '97? Well, making contact, yeah, he had a Bin Laden had a kind of above ground PR guy who actually turned out to be, according to the U.S. government, a member of Al-Qaeda. He's now serving a life sentence in uh, U.S. prison. And uh, so I, I called the CNN London Bureau, and they had his number, and I called him um, and uh, went to have tea with him and you know hung out with him. And then I hung out with a variety of bin Laden associates and colleagues, some people who really knew him pretty well, some people who knew him sort of peripherally. They were all based in London because at the time, you know, uh, Karl Marx is buried in Highgate Cemetery. So, I mean, the English, you know, UK has had a long and honorable tradition of, like, housing dissidents. And, and some of these people were real dissidents and some were really members of Al-Qaeda. But I didn't even know that Al-Qaeda existed at the time. Um, what, and one of them took, we, one of them, a guy called Abu Musab al-Suri, presented himself as kind of a, a, a journalist who covered these conflicts and was, you know, basically an Islamist. and it, many years later, I found out he was kind of a made man in Al-Qaeda. He was very close to bin Laden, but he didn't say any of that at the time. So he and, he and, a, and a colleague of his took us, and us was Peter Arnett, myself, and the cameraman, Peter Juvenal, who'd also spent, he'd gone into into Afghanistan 75 times under the Soviets. So which is like taking, talk about risk. I mean, the Soviets had total air superiority until 1986. They inflicted a really totalitarian war on the population. So... Peter had, and he was a former British Army officer, and he had you know considerable experience. So I, I went with two people who really knew what they were doing. Got it. But actually, Taliban controlled Afghanistan in '97 wasn't especially dangerous because the Taliban, you know, their claim, the reason that they were able to kind of take over essentially they they killed they killed the opposition, um, not necessarily by fighting, but it kind of a little bit with what they did this time around, which is. They seem like an unstoppable force, and Afghans. It's not that they're cowards; it's that they, you know, they. There's been multiple changes of regimes in like the last forty years, and and most Afghans want to retain their heads on their shoulders. And so, if they see that there is an unstoppable force, whether that's the United States after nine eleven, or the Taliban in ninety six, or the Taliban in twenty twenty one, they're going to surrender, or they're going to, you know, make an accommodation. So that so the Taliban controlled Afghanistan when I was there in ninety seven. Was safe, but it was safe at a you know tremendous cost. In fact, I remember talking to some pilots, at a, Afghan pilots, at the hotel. We were staying at a zero-star hotel in <laughs> eastern Afghanistan, and uh, there were a couple of pilots there. And I engaged them in conversation. I said, you know, it is safe because one of the principal—I mean, it had been very anarchic in that civil war period—and they said, yeah, it's safe, but it comes at a price. It's like being in a prison. And I, you know, and I. For a lot of Afghans, that was the experience. And, you know, Afghanistan under the Taliban, one of the reasons I'm very skeptical about the Taliban, and probably anybody listening to this now <laughs> has seen enough of what they've done when they're back in power to be skeptical, is I have a, you know, I spent some time there when they were in power, and the population of Kabul went down to 500,000, the capital city. You know, the population uh, today is, no one really knows, but it's 5 million or 6 million. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, the Taliban really kind of, 
pull the country back to the Middle Ages to the best of their ability. They didn't really have a plan to govern. And, you know, they were very incompetent and they were also pretty brutal. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, they're not the Nazis by any stretch, uh, but they, they certainly, um, you know what they've done. I mean, you know what they do. So anyway, but that's all a long way of saying that, you know, the, the war was over by the time we met Bin Laden in 97. But it was still, and you talk about it in Manhunt, and for those who haven't seen it, the HBO documentary, and it's on uh, Apple TV now, you can go and search for it under Manhunt. You actually retrace those steps, um, which is pretty cool. And you get in, because you were, you, you blindfolded, you're given some glasses, and you get into a van with curtains on the windows, and you're you're driven to some place, and then you go and you have this interview, which uh, which I've watched in in its entirety, and it's uh, it's fascinating to watch today, obviously, knowing what we what we know now. And, and, uh, you talk about it in Holy War Inc and in Manhunt. And, um, what was that like? What was that feeling like? Was it the first time you'd been blindfolded to go to an interview? And, uh, and then once you're there in this cave, I mean, were you worried about being beheaded back then or, uh, or was this just kind of the, the, what you did in that part of the world? If you wanted to interview yeah. with someone like this. I was tremendously excited to be honest. I mean, we were, I mean, I, we were not allowed to film any of this and obviously would, you know, it was like, it was filmed by their cameras. It was by by Bin Laden's cameras, right? We yeah. So we and we couldn't film any of the like what was happening to us, how we got there, mm -hmm. all that. I mean, it was very. You know, of course, it was exciting. Uh, at the time, I was not worried because a they invited us, and b this is before they killed Danny Pearl, the Wall Street Journal mm -hmm. reporter who Al Qaeda essentially kidnapped and, and murdered in January of two thousand two, and and then sort of the rules of the game finished, changed. It's going to be half of younger. Uh, people who are listening to this to remember that there was a time when journalists, aid workers, and 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 you know priests, nuns, you know, you know people non were really treated in wartime as you know kind of they were non-combatants, and so if you were an aid worker, you didn't have to worry about being kidnapped, or if you were a journalist, you didn't have to be worried about being kidnapped or shot at or whatever. I mean, uh, but those rules kind of changed, and obviously the the ISIS made it even worse, but. But so I wasn't concerned about them doing anything to us. Um, I, you know, they, it, it was their first television interview. So it would sort of be weird to, to then sort of do something to us. Clearly they were very concerned about, did we have a tracking device? And if we, if they found one on us, I think they would have definitely, you know, that would have been very bad news for us, but, but we didn't have one. And, um, and the interview proceeded and, you know, he was, uh, very, yeah, you know, very low key, and he um, declared war on the United States. So it was the first time he'd done so to a kind of Western audience. It was his first TV interview. He spoke in Arabic, even though he speaks English, because he wanted to, you know, be very precise about what he was saying in his native language. And uh, people around him treated him with a lot of respect, and they kind of called him the Sheikh, and they hung on his every word. And you know, we he he delivered this interview, and 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 I. We, it's the middle of this, probably three o'clock in the morning by the time he left. And we, uh, you know, uh, we went back to our hotel and went back to the United States and we edited the interview and it went out, I think, on some early May 20, uh, 1997. And it kind of just went out and it just landed with a thud because, you know, no one, no one knew what to make of it because right. it was sort of, he hadn't done anything yet. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and there were people at the U.S. government who were interested in him, but it was a very small group. 
Yeah, I want to ask you about them them later. It's a fascinating yeah. cast of, of characters, and you talk to a lot of them in uh, the Manhunt documentary, and you talk about a lot of them in the in this book as as well. Um, so, did you realize, even though that the interview didn't, uh, he hadn't done the the East Africa embassy bombings yet? There was no coal yet. Obviously, there's no nine eleven yet. Um, did you realize what you had and who you had been been talking to and what his capabilities were going forward? Because wasn't it the first time that he uh, on television really declares war against the the West? Um, and so, did it sink in how significant um, he was as a person and uh, the movement he led? How how much of an impact that was going to have on the future or what, what did you, or did you just go on to the next assignment? No, I mean, I, I thought it was, look, I put a lot of effort into making this happen. And we had put a lot of effort. We, my colleagues, CNN, you know, my bosses at CNN, who I, I must credit Pam Hill and the late John Lane, you know, they, when not, we went in 93 and they gave, you know, it was very expensive and it was very lengthy and it was very uncertain about what was going to happen. And we made this documentary, and then I went back to them in 97. I said, this is a guy, Bin Laden. I think he's behind the, behind the Trade Center attack in 93. And they didn't know who Bin Laden was. But they you know, they had a lot of faith in in me and us and the process. <laughs> they let us go and do it. And and, and uh, uh, so to their credit. But, but you know, because he he had actually done some things, but we weren't aware of them. And mm. it, he actually mentioned them in the interview, and I didn't even know what he was talking about. At one point, he talked about this victory in Aden. Now, years later, I kind of worked out what he meant, which is his guys had bombed two hotels in Yemen, in Aden, which were housing American servicemen who were on their way to Somalia. The bombs had killed the tourists. No American servicemen were killed. You know, we didn't know that had happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but right. it was mentioned in the interview. Um, so now I, always, I was puzzled by this reference for a while. Um, but so that's all by way of saying, you know, he gave these, he made all these threats, but it wasn't clear to us that he'd, was going to do anything about it. It was only, you know, pretty much a year later, August 7th, 1988, and he built two U.S. embassies in Africa, and then it was clear to anybody that he was a real problem because not only did he kill, you know, he killed 212 civilians, you know, he, he had no compunction about it. There was no warning. A number of them were Muslims because Kenya and Tanzania, where the bombs went off, have big Muslim populations. Um, he killed 12 Americans and 200 Africans. He didn't have any problem about it at all. And usually, you know, it's interesting thing about terrorists in the past is that they had, they try to avoid, you know, these mass casualty attacks because they could backfire, lead to a crackdown. You might lose your support, any support you might have. And Bin Laden just didn't care about any of that. Uh, so that from that point forward, it was clear that he was a serious problem. But even then, because he hadn't attacked in the United States, a lot of, you know, once the Clinton administration responded, you know, the Bush administration came in, they were kind of, they didn't, you know, they just didn't see Bin Laden as a big deal. And, you know, the, it, which is strange because, you know, we now, there was a growing body of evidence for sure that you cover yeah, in, in this yeah. book and, and your other ones for sure. And, you know, yeah. that's what I'm, what I'm hoping that, I mean, everybody should read, read this book. It's just fascinating, especially where we are now at this next turning point, essentially in the history of our, uh, United States relationship with, uh, with Afghanistan. So bringing an understanding of that based on all your years of, of study is, is so vital. So, um, and, and what was interesting to me is when you point out that up till that point in these different waves of terrorism, when we talk about it as a tactic that for the most part, they wanted a ton of eyeballs on these events, but not the mass casualty. 
part for those reasons that you just right. mentioned. And then Obama and yeah. Al Qaeda, Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, they they change that dynamic and they want mass casualties and the eyeballs on the screen at the same time that that Al Jazeera is giving essentially him a platform free internet days because they're coming to prominence. They're just coming on the scene in the in the mid nineties, essentially at the same time that he's rising to prominence. And yep. then of course now we have 24 hour news. And then of course when we have the rise of social media and the internet after all that and all this kind of comes together to allow you to have both mass casualty events and more eyeballs than were ever possible in the history of the world at this time. So it's a it's an incredible that is dynamic. Correct. And, you know, in, the, in today's world, they wouldn't have sought an interview with CNN. You know, again, for younger people, you know, CNN was the Twitter of the day, which is kind of seems it seems so old school now. But uh, at the time, it was the most advanced media technology. And now, for, for like somebody like Bin Laden is just using Twitter or, you know, whatever, whatever social media platform doesn't doesn't have to engage with the traditional media. Um, and, you know, so and of course, the barriers to entry for right. the social media zero right so um so <laughs> yeah i think your point i mean the the, the, po the point is that these groups will exploit whatever the latest media technology is because they do want to advertise their what they're doing and their message yeah but even back in the in the 80s there was this uh, magazine jihad uh that uh, i think yeah. you go and you buy a bunch of them in afghanistan or in pakistan or somewhere that you probably still have yeah. today uh, I'm guessing. Um, but I mean, that's the, once again, earlier, even before the, the 24 hour news cycle days with that, with that CNN kicked off, you have Jihad magazine and you have them doing profiles essentially of, uh, of bin Laden. And, uh, and there, there's one, well, before I get to, uh, to the, to the battle that really, that you talk about in the book as really, uh, one of the pivotal points in bin Laden's history, um, with the, with the Soviets, um, you ask early in the book something else here. And, uh, of course, bin Laden is one of those people who has changed the course of history. Um, nine 11 being a seminal moment in history, of the United States and the, and the world. But you ask this question early in the book and you say, the key question about bin Laden is why did he build an organization dedicated to the mass murder of civilians? And you come to the conclusion that it was a gradual process of radicalization rather than a single moment. Um, like a bomb yeah. killing parents or something like that that radicalizes you. Um, but uh, yeah. it's a gradual process of radicalization. And can you um, can you talk about that in, uh, in 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 terms of your understanding of him as a as a person becoming this radicalized individual that changed the course of history? Yeah, you know that. Well, thanks for that question. It's kind of the main question I'm trying to answer. And you know, like there is with all these why questions, it's not there's no super simple answer. And so what I do is kind of explain more like how this became the case rather than why. I don't do a lot of armchair psychologizing. Okay, so his, his parents divorced when he was two. That truly had an effect on him. Uh, his mother was one of you know, more than 20 wives that his dad had. His dad had 54 other kids. He was kind of a marginal figure in the family because his mother was an Alawite, which is a form of Shiism, which is regarded as a radical by certainly by Orthodox Muslims living, Sunni Muslims living in Saudi Arabia. So his mother is sort of a, comes from Syria. She's kind of marginal. He described, Bin Laden himself describes her as a concubine, which is kind of two, two Spanish girls that he meets when he's a teenager, when he's sort of describing his family background. So you know, I think he's kind of a, a little bit of an outsider in his own family. His father dies in a plane crash when he's 10. Uh, by his own account, this has a profound effect on him. He turns to religion. He memorizes the Quran. By the time he's a teenager, he's a very religious teenager. He's chanting about Palestine with his buddies and 
fasting twice a week, praying and getting up in the middle of the night to pray. So he's a very religious teenager, marries when he's 17, starts having his family, uh, Soviets invade, obviously a big moment. For bin Laden, he starts going to Pakistan to help the Afghan resistance for the, for the first five years. Then he goes into Afghanistan in 84. It's a pretty dangerous battlefield. Uh, three years later, he sets up his own military base, which is called the base, Al-Qaeda in, in Arabic. It's very close to a Soviet mil military outpost. Now, nobody with any military training would set up a, their own base next to a Soviet military post. It's a guerrilla war, so you don't set up kind of fixed positions. But Bin Laden wanted to, in his own words, draw enemy fire. He was recruiting people who wanted to die to be martyred. They were idealistic Saudi university students. And uh, Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered by Saudi officials in Istanbul in 2018, uh, in 1998, <clears throat> does the first major profile of Bin Laden. Uh, at this base in Afghanistan, and it's you know it's it's a true portrait of Bin Laden setting up this base with a bunch of you know courageous, idealistic young guys who are fighting the Soviets. Um, and then Bin Laden war ends in '89. Bin Laden sort of casting around for what to do. He flirts with the idea of trying to attack the socialist government in Yemen, in southern Yemen. He flirts with the idea of trying to overthrow the communist government in Afghanistan, which has replaced the Soviets. Uh, neither of those happen. And then the Soviet, the Americans, you know, come into uh, Saudi Arabia because of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. And, you know, he's always been anti-American because of its support for Israel, but he, um, that really turns him against the United States. He, <clears throat> you know, he offers his men famously to fight, so to fight Saddam. That, that offer is laughed at, uh, rightly so. Saddam had the fourth largest army in the world at the mm -hmm. time. <laughs> and had just fought a 10-year war with the Iranians. So they, yeah. they knew what they were doing to some degree. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that, uh, so that's, and then Bin Laden's in exile in Sudan. That's when he starts plotting against the United States. He gets re-exiled from Sudan to Afghanistan. Uh, within a week of being in Afghanistan, he, he declares war in a kind of very serious way against the United States. So it's that process that book tracks. And you know, one of the things, I've done books about other I did a book called the United States of Jihad about Americans who kind of become jihadists. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think you, yeah, you've got it there. <laughs> yeah, right here. Right. There it is. Yep. Got them all. You know, you know I, I, I looked at a lot of these cases and, you know, why do Americans join Al Qaeda? I mean, it's like, it's a puzzle, right? Uh, and, you know, there's a variety of reasons and it can be a death of a parent. It can be uh, feeling that Muslims are under attack. It can be losing a job. It can be, uh, you know, a uh, friend who kind of accesses this and, you know, there's, you don't go all the way down the path of radicalization necessarily to violence. You may just, be, you know, become a fundamentalist and that's it. But, um, you know, it, it's a very individual set of decisions and the more you dig into it, it's not like there's some easy answer for all this. And in Bin Laden's case, you know, you could, you could say his father died early, his parents divorced when he was a kid, but the interesting thing is, you know, he had 54 siblings who presumably had much of his same life experience, maybe not exactly. And none of them went down the path he chose. So, you know, it was, you know, the, what, I, what I try and say in the book is that, you know, none, none of this was inevitable. There were people who tried to intervene, his family tried to intervene, his friends tried to intervene, his associates tried to intervene, Jamal Khashoggi, who I've just mentioned, visited him in Sudan. And try to kind of like say, hey, try and make peace with the Saudis and give me an interview in which you renounce violence. And 
he was he seemed to be interested in that opportunity, but he didn't take it. So, um, you know, he it was a, a gradual process. You know, he, there were various off ramps he could have taken, mm-hmm. but, he, but he chose. Not. I thought that I found those fascinating in the book, the off ramps, um, particularly some of those random events that happened that uh, may have been able to change quite possibly the course of history. One being his older brother dying in an airplane accident in in Texas, I believe, um, who was someone he looked up to that possibly could have intervened or maybe taken him on a different path, perhaps. Um, but I found those were 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 fascinating. But going back to 1987, or really 1986, when he starts to build these caves and he brings in equipment um, through his uh, his construction company that he had a, a, a stake in and was and is more actively involved in back then, um, and they start using backhoes and digging these trenches and all that stuff, essentially setting up for uh, to draw the Soviets into a to a battle. It seemed like anyway, um, and it's, it's at the Battle of Zhaji. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct correctly. Yeah. Um, but so they had this battle and it, it was surprising to me, but I'd have to put myself back in 1987 and remember the technology and everything that was going on is that they start this construction project, I think in the fall of, of, uh, 1986, the battle doesn't happen until 1987. Um, and I'm thinking that's a lot of time that the Soviets allowed them to build up these caves and trenches and, and all that stuff. So that, that stood out to me, but, um, what also stood out to me is what a, a PR victory it was. Uh, public relations victory for him and that it could draw in new recruits. Um, it kind of elevated him to war hero status because he got some legitimate press, not just in Jihad magazine, but in the, the larger press at the time. Um, and that gave him some, that kind of opened the aperture for him, it seemed um, a little bit um, and just elevating his status. Uh, so I think that was a seminal moment. And then he also, in his own mind, it seems in the book, you talk about how he would mention quite not infrequently that uh, this battle, it it uh, it took the Soviets, defeated the Soviets, and pushed them out of Afghanistan, which it obviously did not do. Um, but he got to thinking, maybe uh, he told himself that so many times without looking at just the data and the numbers and all the rest of it, that maybe he did actually push the Soviets out of Afghanistan. Um, so yeah. that seemed like a turning point uh, in in, in I, his I, history. I think it was it was a turning point. I mean, because it was really you know he. I think at the time there were 6,000 Saudi princes. None of them had any record of going to Afghanistan, even though there was like a, a totally justified holy war. Here's a you know, non-Muslim force invading a Muslim country, um, you know, from a point of view of Islamic kind of theology, this was a very justified jihad. And of course it was one the United States supported. Um, so, but yeah, I think the experience of being in battle himself, uh, he, you know, the, the picture you get of him in his 20s, he was shy to the point of almost saying nothing mm-hmm. when he had meetings. He would say very little. Um, and people found him to be very modest and very retiring. And sort of, I think that leading men into battle and fighting the Soviets himself, I mean, I, that definitely changed him. And he suddenly thought, okay, I've got this organization, which they, they kind of nicknamed Al-Qaeda because it was the base. Mm-hmm. And they were at this base and that nickname kind of stuck and then became the name of the group. Um, and from that point forward, by the time he founds Al-Qaeda, he's 31. So he's, you know, he's a fully formed adult. And I think by then he really believed in himself and believed some of the things, Jack, that you just said, which is that he'd had a personal role in defeating the Soviets. And there's no denying that he fought bravely against the Soviets, mm-hmm. but the idea that his guys had any meaningful impact on the war was a, one of many delusions he had. Because, you know, one thing the Afghans don't need a lot of help with is fighting. <laughs> and there were 
175,000 Afghans on the battlefield at any given moment. That's the low end estimate during the war against the Soviets. There were maybe 300 uh, followers of bin Laden on the battlefield, and that's the high end estimate. So, I mean, there's just no way that these guys had any real impact on the war. Now, we heard uh, after 9-11 and continued to hear for quite some time that uh, bin Laden, just uh, he was just a financier. He didn't really do anything. Maybe he was there, but he didn't really do much. And that doesn't seem to be the case. And in your in your research, do you think, that, and it was, it was reported by a lot of different uh, news organizations over the years, um, was that intentional misinformation by our intelligence services? Or was that just kind of the understanding because people threw around this financier type of a moniker that seemed to fit with other people with money in the Middle East? How did that come about? I, I think it's the latter, because when they first, when the agency first uh, started, CIA first started kind of looking at bin Laden, they actually, they were looking at the money issue. Um, and uh, they, and that's how they conceived of bin Laden as a financier. And that's not wrong, uh, but, it, but it wasn't the whole picture. And so, yeah, I just think it was, um, and, and I think, you know, kind of a case of mirror imaging, which is, you know, but you, know, you don't want to do if you're an intelligence uh, analyst, which is to kind of ex- think the whole world functions just like we do. Well, I think there was a kind of an assumption that, you know, at one point, the common number that people wrote about was $300 million that Bin Laden had in his bank account. Well, it turns out, and Steve Cole, my former colleague where I work at New America and now the dean of Columbia Jones School, you know, he, he really did a forensic examination of what Bin Laden inherited, and it was you know, just under twenty million, which was not dissimilar to a figure that I that I'd heard mm-hmm. um, uh, when I was first reporting on this. Uh, and so, twenty million is, is it's not a small amount of money. It's not three hundred million, and and you can't really count for. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the nine eleven hijackers were motivated by money. They you can't get people to commit suicide on your behalf by by giving them money. I just, that's not going to work. So there was a set of ideas that Bin Laden had. He did have this. He did fight against the Soviets. Uh, you know, the, the the idea that he didn't is simply not not true. Yeah, and it's interesting how you talk about that money. We we heard you know you hear Saudi billionaire family, and then you just assume all this money. But really, that slice of the inheritance was fairly small. And then there was a stake in the company uh, that I think was eventually frozen along the way, or he didn't have access to once he's expelled from from Saudi Arabia, perhaps, or however that came about. But over time, he had less and less access to any of that money, and was on the verge of bankruptcy and multiple was, times. Yeah, and at a certain point, he just ran out of yeah. money. I mean, he uh, and. and his, his personal money was all frozen in Sudan. It seems that according to some of the documents that were found in about about his son was able to go to Sudan and kind of recoup like mm. a couple of million dollars of the $29 million Bin Laden said he put in. But I think at the end, when the money, the money that was then financing Al-Qaeda was, you know, people would come to Afghanistan with donations. The people would come to Afghanistan to join and they'd bring their own, you know, small amounts of money in. And it kind of was sort of self-financing by either you know people in the Gulf who, who kind of sympathized, or um, or some of the you know the people who joined for their own resources. And of course, Taliban controlled Afghanistan before 9/11. Mm-hmm. It was not a hugely expensive place to operate in. Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you've written so much about Bin Laden, about Al Qaeda, terrorism, um, and uh, so in in 2011, 2012. Um, 
uh, obviously you, you get, uh, there's some more access. Uh, the Trump administration releases a bunch of documents from a bad compound that my, that my friends helped, helped, uh, gather up, which is crazy that they did that. And we're talking on this podcast now, but, um, there's like something like 70,000 files, I think, and 6,000 pages of useful information um, that are private yeah. letters to his wife, to his kids, some uh, other leaders of, of Al-Qaeda and other jihadi groups. Um, but what surprised you the most, sifting through all those documents um, in oh, to write your, your latest book? What was, the, what was the biggest surprise? What's that? A, good job of your girlfriends picked up these documents because they're extremely helpful, uh, not just to people like myself, but obviously to the you know, to the CIA and, and others. And I think there was, you know, Amal McRaven, you know, basically had a, he wanted to have it finished at 30 minutes and it took 48 minutes. And in that 80 minutes, they, the seals there uh, picked up uh, like 100 storage devices and thumb drives and five computers. And and so you have 470,000 files. Some of them were, you know, not useful because Bin Laden would make multiple He'd, he'd edited a document 50 times. His kids were watching cartoons. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, sort of material that wasn't, but there were 6,000 pages of useful material. Uh, and the stuff that is surprising, I think there are, there are three or four things that are sort of surprising. One, the extent to which his two oldest wives were advising him. Over, I knew that they'd have PhDs. One, his oldest wife was 62 and Bin Laden was 54 when he was killed and she was 62. She'd had an independent career in Saudi Arabia. She had a, a PhD in child psychology. She claimed descent from Prophet Muhammad. Um, and, and then he had another wife, his same age, 54. She had a PhD in Quranic grammar. She was also a poet and she edited his writings. So I kind of knew some of that. But what I didn't know was that they were really part of his kitchen cabinet. Every night they would gather in the, in the dining room or the kitchen and talk about like how he should respond to the events of the Arab Spring, which was in Bin Laden's view, the most important event in you know, the Middle East in centuries. But, you know, his views, his followers were absent, at least in the beginning. And so they all knew this was a problem. And so Bin Laden was, it turned out, highly reliant on his two educated, highly educated wives to help him do his thinking for him, to help him edit his speeches. To, and I thought, I think that was surprising. That was, so, so that was surprise number one. Surprise number two from these documents is his two bodyguards who had been essential um, you know, they'd been with him for a decade since 9-11, were about to leave him. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he wasn't paying them very much. He was paying them $100 a month, which you know, turned out to be, uh, you know, they were concerned that it was very dangerous to be looking mm -hmm. after the world's most dangerous man. They had reason to be concerned because both of them were killed and one of their wives were killed on the night of the raid. But they were planning to leave Bin Laden. And this was a big problem for them because when they left, they were his, I mean, it's not just that they went out and like, if you needed a, particular book or newspaper or whatever. I mean, they would go and get it. Uh, but they were also delivering all the messages to the other leaders of Al-Qaeda. Um, and they were hit the one link to the outside world. And they were protecting him. And they also, the house that he constructed in the Badabad, which was really purpose-built to kind of disguise the fact he was there, it was not in his name, it was in the bodyguard's name. So one of the surprising note letters and all this stuff that was recovered was on January 15, 2011, Bin Laden wrote his two bodyguards a note saying, essentially, last time we met, we got so everybody was so angry that I'm writing you a letter to kind of memorialize what we agreed. So bear in mind that these bodyguards were living just a few yeah. yards away from him. So, you know, it's not often that you pen a letter to people you're kind of <laughs> living with. 
to kind of get in writing kind of what you agree to. So Bin Laden wrote, you know, we've agreed that I can, I need to find a new protector. And I got on, I basically got six months, which actually makes Obama's decision to kind of pull the trigger on the raid at the end of April, even it was a smart decision. But because one of the things that Obama was worried about the night of, as he made the decision, he was in the treaty room in the White House, which is in the residential quarters. And one of the things he was concerned about is what if Bin Laden decides to leave? It wasn't clear if it was Bin Laden there or not, but let's say it was, it, you know, he could leave. And in fact, it turns out that he was planning to leave as early as July of 2011, not because he wanted to, but because the bodyguards were abandoning him. So he was, that was another concern in these documents. Another concern was, you know, he hadn't attacked the United States. He was very annoyed about that. He was kind of pressing with people to kill President Obama, kill President try and kill Vice President Biden, try and kill General Petraeus, all of which was sort of delusional because they had no capacity to do those sorts of things. And then he was also he was also very concerned about the fact that Al-Qaeda's affiliates were killing so many Muslim civilians, which kind of was a change of heart for him because he had he began to care more and more about the issue. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as you know, killed so many Muslim civilians. This was really a big issue. Al-Qaeda positioned itself as a defender of Muslims here. Its affiliate had killed probably tens of thousands of Iraqis and a lot of Pakistanis and Afghans. And so, so there was a concern. So he, he was thinking about rebranding Al Qaeda to be more careful about this issue of killing Muslim civilians. So he had a lot of things that he was worried about in the last weeks of his life. And, you know, the documents, by the way, are all publicly out there. The, the document that was the most useful to me hasn't been translated into English. And I, I, uh, it was, this was a family diary. 226 pages in, in length. It's handwritten in Arabic. Uh, I got a, a, a Nadia Waydad, who's a well-known scholar of Islamism, helped me kind of uh, decipher it because it wasn't intended for public consumption. It's handwritten. It's, uh, you know, it's like if you kept your own diary, you write it in shorthand mm -hmm. in various kinds of ways. So, uh, but this diary really kind of gives a window into what Bin Laden was worried about in these final weeks. And the big thing he was worried about was how to respond to the Arab Spring uh, what to say, how to kind of try and make himself relevant again. Because he, he knew that he was, and his family also knew, like, mm -hmm. he was, he if he didn't come out there with a statement, you know, people would think he was irrelevant. And of course, he, he penned a statement and uh, it wasn't, it was released after his death. It really made no difference. Right. That's so fascinating. And uh, I think one of your books is found in his library in Nevadabad as well. Yeah, he had the audio version of the Osama bin Laden, I know. Um, and so, you know, who knows? What did that feel he, like? Well, I mean, it's interesting, but he, he, he also had a bunch of reports by Rand. Mm -hmm. He had congressional testimony, stuff, congressional testimony I testified in. And he had, he collected, he was very interested in what the West was saying about him. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it was just, he just, was it the curiosity or ego or both? I, I don't know. But he had a whole library of books, you know, including by Mike Schroyer, mm -hmm. who ran the uh, CIA unit uh, dedicated to hunting down Bin Laden, um, and you know, books by Bob Woodward. And he had a, a he had quite a library of books. Um, and they they weren't necessarily physical library. He he you know the, his his couriers were bringing him thumb drives, and he would have PDFs of stuff he was interested in, they would give it to him. Interesting. And then in all this research, you know, a lot of people talk about, um, without evidence really other than maybe circumstantial, um, or just by looking at a map about ISI or the Pakistanis knowing that he was living there in Abbottabad. 
Um, what, uh, and you dispel some of that in the book, uh, saying, Hey, there's no direct link to any, any of that, but what were your thoughts on, yeah. on, on that connection of him living there and of, uh, Pakistan? But what, I think you point to the fact that there is, there's not just silence about it, but there is actual surprise in some of the collection done, um, from senior level people right. at, in ISI and Pakistani military, um, that they didn't know we were going to see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I talked to everybody in the, in the, Obama administration at any level of seniority. And of course, it was all tightly held, but I pretty much have talked to everybody um, who was there. Um, and, you know, they you used the word surprise on the night of the operation. Like they, they could tell the Pakistanis had no idea what was happening. They didn't, they really didn't know what was happening. It wasn't that they were pretending to, they were surprised. And in fact, one of the really interesting documents I used was the it was a pretty good Pakistani government investigation by two, by four independent retired civil servants, whatever. They, and it's a very critical investigation. Uh, they talked to a lot of the folks involved, and, and they talked to the wives of Bin Laden, one of his two adult daughters. And uh, so, one of the, the takeaway from that is that um, Pakistanis had no idea he was there. Um, and and then if you look at all the documents and it's hard to prove negatives, there's nothing in the documents. Look, if I had a, if I was living for five and a half years in a particular place and I had a Pakistani official who was kind of my controller or the guy who knew where I was, I mean, you'd expect some sort of communications with that person. Uh, there's nothing of that kind. Um, and you know, it turns out that Bin Laden was hiding from people on the compound. Forget about you know, he was he was being very careful. One of the bodyguards' wives didn't know it was Bin Laden who was living there, um, and so he was going to great lengths. And I don't think people, most of the people, senior people in Al Qaeda, didn't know where Bin Laden was. They would just get a letter. It's not like he would sort of hear my geographical coordinates you know, right. <laughs> at the end of the letter. He he was being super, 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 super careful. And when people say to me. Well, surely they must have known. I, I sometimes refer to Whitey Bulger. You know, Whitey Bulger killed 20 people in Boston. He was a subject of a very intense FBI manhunt, which went on for, I think, I think he disappeared in 1999. It took almost you know, two decades to find him, and he was living in California. So the point is that people, look, I mean, look at this terrible person who mm. was seemingly killed his girlfriend, uh, who's disappeared into this nature reserve, or we don't really know. And I mean, the huge amount of law enforcement efforts being put on finding this person. So that, that's in our own country where we have you know, considerable resources. And so the, the fact that Bin Laden disappeared and, you know, he, what, what did him in in the end was he, he wanted to remain in charge of Al Qaeda. And, you know, he did that by communicating by courier um, uh, with the leaders of Al Qaeda, and he tried. He was trying to micromanage the group, not necessarily that successfully all the time. But um, yeah, if he just sort of done not, if he'd said nothing, never written a letter to anybody, I think he, you know, he might still be alive. Uh, but he did want to remain in control, and he, he he sent these long memos to his leader leadership to kind of try and retain control. But it was like running a business in the 19th century, where you don't have a telephone, or you don't have the internet, you don't even have the telegraph. Um, it was a hard way to kind of keep control, but he did, you know, they went, you know, sometimes messages get lost or the people would take a long time to reply or pretend they didn't get the message or, right. or who knows, but, but often people would get these messages in places like Somalia and they pay attention to them. So, I mean, it's kind of amazing Bin Laden sitting in a Badabad of Somalia is you know, many thousands of miles away. So he was sending lead, you know, letters to Al-Shabaab, these Somali terrorist group. And he told them, for instance, don't change your name to Al-Qaeda. Be bad for fundraising. Keep it on the QT. 
uh, on the on the down low, and uh, he um, and, and they they and they agreed, and they didn't they didn't change their name, they didn't identify themselves with Al Qaeda while Bin Laden was alive. So he he did retain. It's kind of a strange mixed message because people have sort of said, well, people look at these documents and say, well, Bin Laden was still really in control, or people people look at these documents and say, Bin Laden was delusional and he micromanager but, but not very successful and, and I think both of those things are true he was some of his groups al-qaeda in Iraq you know he they basically ignored what he was saying because he, he and the leadership of al-qaeda were saying stop executing people publicly and mm-hmm. stop attacking the Shia but you know they al-qaeda in Iraq essentially ignored that but other groups paid attention interesting and then uh, Al-Zawahiri, your, your understanding of him has morphed over over the years from when you wrote Holy War, yeah. Inc., that I think came out, what, in August of 2001, right before September 11th, and then I think a, a reprint afterward with some, uh, with some other notes in there. But I think your understanding of him and his influence on the organization has morphed along with the rest of the publics because I don't know where it started with him with bin laden as a puppet if that was misinformation on our side of the house intentionally or is it just the visual of him being right next to um bin laden in some photos that people could say oh look there's the real brains the quiet one sitting next to him but really he was kind of a marginal figure and not a very good leader uh, that we have a lot of evidence to to point to now well thanks for picking up on that um because you know i think that so Zawa, i mean i think you're right the visual because zawahiri was always sitting next to bin laden after 9 11 in the visual. So, so therefore, he must have been important. He was, when Bin Laden gave his first and only press conference, Bin Laden, Zawahiri was sitting next to him, Bin Laden in 98. But, you know, but as I've dug into it, it's just, Zawahiri was a very marginal figure, and, and Bin Laden didn't really consult him in any meaningful way on any of the big attacks. Didn't clue him in about 9 11 until very late in the game. Uh, attacking the United States was not Zawahiri's interest. He really wanted regime change in Egypt, which Bin Laden could care less about. Um, and, um, so one, that's one of the takeaways and, 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 it, you know, it, we've seen that Zawahiri, uh, is a very weak leader. Uh, he may, it, by all accounts, he may be in poor health. We don't really know, but he, he's done nothing to resurrect this organization. And in fact, you know, as you know, Al Qaeda and ISIS split very publicly in 2014 when ISIS kind of created itself. I think Bin Laden might've been able to kind of keep everything together. Uh, of course, he didn't want to attack the Shia, which is what ISIS is very much directed at. But uh, Bin Laden had so much more stature than Zawahiri, and you know, re- was widely kind of widely respected and liked by these jihadi groups. Zawahiri is a kind of cantankerous, boring, char- anti-charismatic guy. Uh, so, but you know, he may well die of ill health or in a drone strike, and. There is somebody else in the wing, Saif al-Adil, who's a former Egyptian special forces officer mm-hmm. who's been in Iran for quite a long period of time. He may be back in Afghanistan already. He would be a uh, potentially pretty uh, good leader of al-Qaeda. And of course, you know, jumping forward to, to today, you know, we have this extraordinary situation where Siraj Akhani, who, who's uh, the leader of one of the, you know, the deputy leader of the Taliban, is now the Minister of Interior of the Taliban, which is like running DHS and the FBI simultaneously. With a price on his head, and right? He, two two different prices, I think. Two different prices. You're very uh, well <laughs> noticed. I mean, <laughs> ten million from one, five million from another department. I mean, from the State Department and five from the FBI. And I was like, I asked if somebody in the FBI was why why the difference, and they were like, well, you know, State Department has more money uh, for the, <laughs> the program. But but the point is, is and and the UN. Um, identified Siraj Khani as uh, 
you know, they think he's still on the leader, leadership council of Al Qaeda. So this is really kind of amazing sort of history repeating itself type situation, except arguably worse, with a big difference that, of course, you know, the United States is much better defended than it was on 9-11. Their ability to carry out an attack on the United States is so much lower because for so many different reasons. I mean, look, just think about TSA, which didn't exist on 9-11, or National Counterterrorism Center, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we're like you know much much better defended, but what we're not defended against is Americans kind of radicalizing in front of their computers, um, and I sort of think that it's not impossible that the Taliban victory will energize, just like ISIS's victory could energize people in the United States who don't go and train with ISIS or with jihadi groups in Afghanistan, but just get excited by, mm-hmm. by what's going on in Afghanistan and and uh, may take matters in their own hands. So unfortunately. So if we had this conversation a year ago, um, I wouldn't be saying, I mean, we're, we're at an, another iteration of this. It, it, you know, let's see how bad it, it could be. I mean, I don't think it's, it, it's not going to be 9-11 again or anything close, but it certainly could be ISIS summer of 2014, which, you know, they trained, uh, you know, they had, there was an attack in Paris that killed 130 people uh, with ISIS trainees. Uh, there was an attack in Brussels that killed dozens. There was an attack in, you know, the ISIS certainly trained people for attacks in the West with some success. Uh, they never trained any Americans to, to carry out attacks, but they did inspire attacks mm-hmm. in the United States in Orlando and San Bernardino. Right. So I don't think it's going to be exactly the same. Uh, Afghanistan is harder to get to than Syria and Iraq, but, but I think there's going to be more similarities and differences. Um, and the Taliban, it, there's, there's nothing the Taliban have done so far that sort of convinced me that they are, you know, significantly different than they were before 9-11. There's certainly a lot of uh, indicators that point to history rhyming at uh, at the very least. Yeah. Um, but going back to Zawahiri quickly and his uh, involvement in knowing about 9-11 and, and that sort of thing. Um, well, first, before we get there, what um, where were you on, 9, on 9-11 and did you know immediately Al-Qaeda? Well, just, I mean, yeah, I did. Because, I mean, I, you mentioned my first book. In fact, I finished it 10 days before 9-11. And, you know, like any first book, it had a lot of problems. And I didn't. And I'd also framed it as a travel log. And, you know, because no one really was that, that interested in the subject. And, you know, suddenly I had to reframe it completely because it had been this massive tragedy. And then, of course, you know, and I, but, so I was going into CNN because Akhman Shah Massoud had just been assassinated by Al-Qaeda. Now, I didn't know it was by Al-Qaeda. I knew that he'd been killed. And the Northern Alliance, which was this group, was trying to kind of keep it quiet. They knew that Masood's death would be very bad for their morale. And so I was going into uh, to CNN to talk about this fact, and then the 9-11 attacks happened. So, yeah, I mean, I knew immediately, if anybody, like, I mean, you didn't need any special knowledge. <laughs> and in fact, I'd written a full-page letter to the New York Times to their main foreign correspondent, um, John Burns, on August the 14th. And I, before, I wrote, wrote him a full-page letter saying, here's what, I think there's an attack brewing, and here are the reasons why. And I didn't have access to any special information. I could just tell by, you know, Al Qaeda tended to warn when it was doing mm-hmm. attacks, and there were sort of warning signals from Bin Laden. There was also a lot of USG activity that, you know, there were uh, uh, there were closing embassies, and there there were in this in the and there were kind of alerts in the Arabian mm-hmm. Peninsula, and it seemed that the government was of concern. So anyway, so all this amounted to me to me like there was something in the works now. You know, you know what? I, I didn't know. I mean, right. And, uh, but 
but yeah, I knew it was, I knew it was Bin Laden because it's like the, the question is when that kind of thing happens, who has the capability and who has the intent? Now, a lot of people may have the capability, but not the intent. Or, and, mm. um, you know, so in fact, George W. Bush asked this question on the plane on 9 11 to Mike Morell, who was a CIA briefer. I think it was at 10 40 a.m. He's like, who did this? Was it the Iraqis? Was it the Iranians? Morell says, yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, they've got a lot to lose. And, 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 and in fact, I think it's Osama bin Laden, um, you know, uh, and Mike Morell was the same guy who briefed Bush on August the 6th at, at his branch in Texas saying, you know, this famous briefing, bin Laden, time to strike in the United States. So the point is the agency, CIA, did a pretty good job of, of strategic warning. Um, and, uh, you know, it happened. And bin Laden's initial... Uh his goal was his strategic goal of 9-11 was to topple governments in the Middle East because without American support, uh, he thinks those governments will, will topple caliphate, the Islamic rule law and all, all these sorts of things and ended up doing the opposite. And then like any yeah. organization that needs to survive, he adapts and he says, Oh, that was my end. A few years later, I think three years later, four years later, he says, uh, well, no, my intention was to draw the Americans in, bleed them dry, bankrupt them. So, so he ad adapts, yeah. uses, uses, uh, the, the platforms available to him at the time to, um, to do that. But, um, uh, what do you think about that adaptability and what his in initial intent was confusing tactics with strategy? Um, I mean, yeah. it's just, I mean, what a mess when you look at the, the whole thing, what the intent was, and then you do the exact <clears throat> opposite. Well, you know, and the Japanese made the same mistake right. with Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. I mean, um, they, the Japanese, and I'm not an expert, but my understanding is the Japanese interpreted the United States kind of raucous democracy to be a sign of weakness um, as opposed to a sign of strength. Um, and, uh, and you know, so four years later, the Imperial Japan's out of business. And so with Bin Laden, sort of the same thing. I think they began to believe his own propaganda, which is kind of common thing. Um, and he, you know, he told us in 97 that United States was weak, it's like a former Soviet Union. This was all completely crazy. Um, and his strategic idea of getting us to pull out of the Middle East after an attack on Washington or New York made no sense. And then people within Al Qaeda told him it made no sense. But he he didn't really listen to them. And you know, one of one of the themes of the book, and it's interesting talking about the book, if you write the book, then you have to talk about it, two different aspects. And like there's some I wish sometimes I wish I'd be more clear in the book about some of these things. You know, I think he he Bernardus really believed that what he, what he believed was true. I mean, we all believe that to some degree, but, you know, Bin Laden didn't really take, um, you know, but people said, you know, this is, this could backfire or this could be against Islam or this could be bad for the Taliban. This could be bad for Al Qaeda. He just completely tuned that out and he kind of shopped around for people who agreed mm -hmm. in Al Qaeda with him. And then he would listen to them. Um, and, you know, in a way it was kind of a textbook case of being a, really bad leader because he didn't, <laughs> didn't, he didn't take on new information that he disagreed with. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, in the end he, he achieved very, very little, he changed, you know, achieved nothing. And he, um, um, yeah, I think over time, I mean, already one of the reasons I wrote the book, Jack, in fact, was I teach at Arizona state and one of the bright students in my class, I realized she probably had just been born on 9-11 or maybe hadn't been born. She asked me, what's the difference between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban? I was like, well, you know, that's a really, really good question. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. And then I realized that people joining the U.S. military, you know, if you think about the 13 American servicemen and, and women, American servicemen and women who were killed 
at Abbey Gate, Kabul Airport, most of them were either not born or were babies on island. Yeah. And so, you know, this is an event that is now entered into history for younger people. And it's an event that exists in memory for people like myself that are older. But I thought it would be useful to kind of go back and we know a lot more about Bin Laden today than we did even 10 years ago uh, because of the documents yeah. that your friends recovered, uh, because of other stuff that's come out. And I thought it was a good time to sort of try to do a total assessment of this guy uh, because he changed history, changed American history, certainly changed the first two decades of our history. And then also changed the, mid -great, the Middle East in all sorts of unexpected ways mm -hmm. uh, that he didn't intend, but it, but it happened. And so that kind of was the reasoning that I wrote the book. And thank you, by the way, for reading it so carefully. Of course. <laughs> oh, <laughs> of course, I try to be. I always thought that it was my my duty as a, as a citizen and as a uh, as an operator in the military and the SEAL teams to to know my history so I could make the best decisions possible under fire, whether that was tactical sure. or maybe eventually strategic or certainly operational so, in the middle there. Which years were you on the SEAL team? I got in 96, I came into the the, uh, the military. 97 was at, at BUDS, our SEAL training. And then I retired in 2016. So I had a 20-year wow, run really there. Cool. And the first, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, a, I was a glutton for punishment. But uh, the first six years were, were enlisted. And uh, so when the, uh, the, the USS Cole was hit, when the East African embassy bombings happened, I was the intelligence representative for the platoon. And so I was always just a, a reader. My mom was a librarian growing up, so I was always surrounded by books. And I naturally gravitated to the, those that had themes about warfare, terrorism, insurgencies, that sort of thing. So I've really been a student of this uh, my, my entire life. So um, wow. I, I just think it's what we owe next generations is to be as informed as possible so we can make the best decisions possible, whether that's in the voting booth or leading men down range, uh, either way, it's a, equally as important. Well, you know, that's, you know, Jim Mattis has said a version of that. Cause like, you know, obviously he was, a, he is a big reader, but I think he basically said, you know, it's like the reason I read is so I don't get a lot of people yeah. killed. You know, I mean, I'm summarizing what he said. I mean, he said it in a more pithy way, <laughs> but like something why he, why he did so much reading. And I mean, I was like, Obviously, you're not going to, everything's situation is different, but if you don't bring some knowledge of history to the situation, you're going to make more mistakes than if you just come into it completely blind. Yeah. No, it's that, that foundation for which to make better decisions going forward, hopefully with a little bit of wisdom. That's, uh, that's, that's always the goal. But in this, you also, you write something that was, uh, uh, I wanted to read. And I think everyone needs to, to read this book because it encapsulates the last 20 years through the eyes of the man who actually changed history. Um, you write, Bin Laden also offered no positive vision of the future other than the appeal of a caliphate that would somehow establish itself after the American defeat in the Middle East. There was no Bin Laden hospitals or soup kitchens. Meanwhile, Bin Laden's enemies list was extensive and included every Middle Eastern regime, Muslims who didn't share his views, the West in general, Jews and Christians. Making a world of enemies is never a winning strategy. As Sun Tzu once observed, tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. I mean, that's just, yeah. I think that encapsulates what, <laughs> what, he, uh, what he accomplished by essentially going to war with anyone who didn't agree with him in a, a spectacular well, you know, it's, way. It's, it's the mistake Napoleon made, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, like Napoleon, you know, he could have, if he didn't, he made a world of enemies. And it's really the mistake ISIS made also, because ISIS antagonized every ethnic group in Iraq, and then, you know, the United States, and then all of its allies and yeah, <laughs> you're not going to win if you make a world of enemies. And so I think, you know, Bin Laden made that mistake. Napoleon made that mistake. 
ISIS made that mistake, and you know, eventually they're all going to ally your enemies. Yeah, and defeat you. Um, yeah, and it's not impossible the Taliban will make this mistake again because I, I think that you know, embedded in their DNA is some pretty bad judgment about the world. Mm. Um, and you know, they may have, they, you know, surely they had time to reflect on some of their mistakes, but uh, you know, they could engage in ethnic cleansing in Iraq, in Afghanistan very easily. They could kill the dual national who's American. They could allow a jihadi group to train some Westerners on that territory, either through incompetence or through actual just allowing them. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, we should have this conversation, you know, three or four years from now, because right now the Taliban are a very, very good. You know, they're militarily better shape than they were before 9/11. They captured all our equipment. Uh, they have completely defeated what remained of the resistance, um, but. You know, I think, you know, things can't change. I mean, Obama changed his mind in Iraq, as you know, mm -hmm. because of uh, ethnic cleansing against the Yazidis and because of the murder of Jim Foley by ISIS. Um, <clears throat> and and then a bunch of other countries alive with the United States. Remember, they burned the Jordanian pilot alive. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. um, so Middle Eastern countries joined the alliance and suddenly ISIS, you know, was you know three or four years later and a lot of this happened under obama and it was finished under trump and isis lost its geographical caliphate so isis and the taliban of course there's a lot of differences but there are a lot, there are some similarities and i think that the taliban um you know it's it's not impossible that they will they themselves could fracture because of disagreements internally that could lead to an RC civil war which would not be a good thing that actually might be even worse than the present situation because that would be an even more conducive environment for jihadi groups uh, but you know, we'll we'll see what happens. I'm not I'm not convinced the Taliban are going to be there uh, forever. Yeah. Well, I think uh, before Kabul even fell um, a, a couple of months back, you uh, uh, made a prediction that hey, I think what the Taliban wants, and I may I'm guessing that you saw provinces, cities, towns falling across Afghanistan because before Kabul falls and before we see every, all those images on, on TV of, of the evacuation, uh, you predicted, you said, I think what the Taliban wants is to parade through the streets with American weapons, vehicles, you said something to that, that effect in advance of everybody yeah. else saying, Hey, look, the Taliban has American vehicles, American weapons, and they're parading through the streets of Kabul. Um, so you came to that. Yeah. And I thought it would happen, yeah, maybe on the 9-11 anniversary and it happened quicker. Mm -hmm. You know, as soon as Kunduz fell, uh, I was on CNN. You don't want to like make predictions on live TV that turn out to be total nonsense. But, um, you know, when Kudus fell, I knew that a game was up because you, it's the most important point between Kabul and Kandahar, the most important cities in Afghanistan, as you know. So once that city fell and that was, you know, the, the game was over. And, and, and so I, there was a sort of discussion around uh, during this time about, hey, this was an intelligence failure. I don't think it was an intelligence failure. Actually, the intelligence community did a pretty good job of saying, you know, this could go wrong very quickly. Three, they said 30 to 90 days, which mm -hmm. turned out to be 11 days. It's really no implemented. It's an estimate. It's not a right. crystal ball prediction. Uh, but, you know, really it was a policy failure. And I blame the Biden administration a lot for that policy failure. And I blame the Trump administration a lot for that policy failure. After all, it was H.R. McMaster who described the peace agreement with the Taliban as a, quote, surrender agreement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, of course, he was out of office at the time. But so there's a lot of blame to go around, and um, you know, historians will be studying 
what went wrong for a long time. Yeah, I just hope, I wish it would be more than uh, historians and journalists. Uh, I wish it would be policymakers, senior level military leaders, uh, people who are advising the president, well, politicians, <laughs> these people who would crack a book every now and again, because we certainly, we didn't have to go all the way back to Alexander the Great. We didn't go have to go back to Genghis Khan. Uh, we had three British excursions in the 1800s, early 1900s. We had the Soviets. We had we had some history with which to, uh, to, to kind of guide our decision-making process. And even our last 20 yeah. years in Afghanistan, we don't seem to have really learned from these different uh, moments, uh, in particular, it being part of the culture, like we mentioned earlier, to maybe, hey, change sides to the stronger warlord. Uh, if that if that makes yeah. sense, is that's going to keep your head attached to your shoulders and keep your village from getting getting decimated. So one good thing is that in the, I think in the, in the National Defense Authorization Act, there is money for an independent commission, um, which is great. I mean, if it, and, and it wouldn't, you know, there was a, a friend of mine, Joel Rayburn, led the Army um, History of Iraq, which is a very, you know, serious history and is not a typical military history, which is often we took, you know, pill F. F right. you know, it's it very tactical. Mm-hmm. The, the Army History of Iraq is really the closest we're going to get to an official history of the Iraq War because it is a real history. But what we need now is, an, you know, this is going to be an independent commission with people with real expertise to say, like, what are the lessons learned? Because I'm very suspicious of, you know, the, the military is gearing itself up for this peer competition, which on some levels makes sense. I mean, certainly China. But what we keep getting, you mentioned, you know, Vietnam, and we keep getting dragged into these conflicts that are not what we want because they're messy, protracted, inconclusive, guerrilla warfare insurgencies you know i mean that you know the u.s military doesn't particularly want to do that <laughs> uh not very good for, at it. but, but what's that they to be very good at it um and it seems like these well, wars I mean, that we call irregular are much more regular yeah. than we would think uh, <laughs> exactly the irregular wars turn out to be pretty regular and i i just i think we make a big mistake about uh, the sort of Say it's all about, about peer competition. And by the way, if it's all about peer competition, why did we give up Bagram Air Base, mm-hmm. which is you know uh, in Afghanistan, which is very near China, and very near Iran, and very near Russia, and is you know one of the at one point had fifty thousand American men and women serving there, and uh, you know we just kind of gave it away. Um, so I you know if we were serious about peer competition, it seems like Bagram Air Force, Air Base would be part of that, um, and we on you know so anyway we. We um, there's a lot to unpack yeah, for the I pages think, of history, and we we don't even have to go back too far to closing our embassy the first time around in Afghanistan. Well, that is, such and a then point, we do it again which, right now. That is the point which people forget, which is we closed our embassy in '89, and it's a very. Ten- I mean, I actually was um, I was just in Doha and Qatar, and I was on the stage with a very good friend of mine, Yanni Koskinas, who's a former JSOC Colonel Air Force. Uh, who worked with Stanley Crystal and also with Saad Maseni, who, uh, who runs Tolo TV, which is the main source of uh, news. And I asked both of them, was it a mistake to close our embassy in Afghanistan? They both said yes. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's sort of like, you know, I mean, part of it is we're going to have to engage with the Taliban to some degree, and it's better to do it in country. And it's not like they're, you know, and we've closed our embassies before. We closed it in Sudan. Um, we yeah, in the mid 90s, we closed our embassy in Afghanistan in 89. And then, so, sort of like, you know, you it, it's a very natural thing to do, partly because of this force protection thing, which is like trumps every other concern. But at the end of the day, if you want to find out what's going on, you know, we need to be there in some shape or form. Uh, and and we're, we're not. Um, uh, and you know, maybe we'll open something 
some kind of interest section uh, in Afghanistan uh, going forward. But we're, we're really flying blind. It's all over the horizon. We're going to launch these attacks from Doha, from Qatar, where we have a big base, and it's like at least a thousand miles away. Um, as you know from working on SEAL teams, I mean, I mean the, the fact that we took out, you know, we killed these ten civilians, thinking it was an ISIS K vehicle in Kabul, speaks for itself. And that was when we had sort of relatively real time real time intelligence. We were still in the country, and we still made this mistake. And so now we're not in the country, and two years down the road, whatever information you had, your intelligence you had, is very perishable. You know, it, it's going to be a different story. Uh, and sure, you technically you still can carry out a drone strike, but you like who's going to tell you where? You know, what's the information that's going to be reliable that we can still have signals intelligence, which I think you know, obviously is very useful. But it, I think it's useful only up to a point. And so, I think this over the horizon kind of thing is, you know, which is what the Biden administration talked about. Is I think is. I, I'm very unconvinced. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the magic bullet. And when you hear administration officials talking about this leverage that we have over the Taliban, what goes through your mind when you hear them use those terms? Well, I always thought that was total BS. <laughs> and I, yeah, because like what if, if we had, I mean, we used to have a lot of leverage when we had Bagram Air Base and when we had, you know, we just kept giving the leverage away at the negotiating table. And then, you know, they, when they were in power in the mid, in the mid and late nineties, they only three countries recognized them. They, were, they had UN sanctions, they had US sanctions. They survived just fine. Of course, they'd like international recognition. Of course, they'd like the nine billion dollars of Afghan government money that is in US banks. Uh, but that doesn't mean they can't survive without it. And you know, one thing that I think people may not completely get is, you know, the thirty-eight million Afghans. And we talk about these hundred twenty-four thousand evacuated. So. There's still 38 million in country. They can be taxed. They can be extorted. That's going to be the principle. You know, they, you know, that's that's their main kind of mm. a source of income. B, you know, that's what they value. Um, and so I think, you know, yeah, they'd like international recognition. Yeah, they'd like, you know, funding. But and it's not like the international community is going to completely abandon them. UN will still be there. Doctors Without Borders will still be there, very honourably. A bunch of international aid organizations were there during the Taliban time, pre 9-11, you know, uh, in, in very difficult conditions. They won't leave the country because we're about to have this humanitarian disaster. I think 14 million people are in danger of starving this winter. Um, so, the, you know, the internet, you know, the, the international community, which I, is a phrase which is like doesn't really mean much, yeah. so vague. But I mean, there will be plenty of international organisations that stay, and and rightly so. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's possible the Chinese will recognise the Taliban first, and then the Pakistanis, maybe the Russians, yeah. maybe the Qataris, who are playing a very good role right now. Uh, but or or they, or they may not. Um, but um, so when we say we have leverage, I. You know, if we have leverage, why do they appoint somebody who's on their leadership council of Al Qaeda as a minister in the cabinet? Yep. I mean, that doesn't say leverage to me. Um, we have, you know, we're obviously in touch with the Taliban. They don't. They do want to. They are the de facto authority in charge. You can't ignore mm -hmm. them. 
Uh, we do want to get Americans out that remain and all people who've helped us. And there's still, I think, a pretty large number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and dual nationals and green card holders and SIBs and P1 and P2 visa applicants. There's a bunch of people you want to get out. And now there's a much more regular. I was talking to Qatari officials just a lot, you know, very recently. And, you know, they, there's now really a system where there are pretty relatively regular flights. Although it's a drop in the bucket because we can take 200 people out on any, any given flight. I think maybe there have been, I don't know, nine flights so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's still, you know, it's, but, but there is a more regularized process. But I, I think the notion that we, the United States, have leverage over that is, I'm, I'm not sure, they haven't demonstrated that they really, they do want things from us, but we're not going to give it to them. We, the United States, we're not going to recognize them in a million years. No. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> one of the people I talked to in, in Doha is the UN guy who runs the Al Qaeda Taliban monitoring cell. Wow. And he, I, I'd read that 14 of the 33 cabinet picks in the Taliban were designated in some way by the United Nations as, you know, and sanctions were on them. And he corrected me. He said there were 17. <laughs> so, so more than 50% of the cabinet have, have like sanctions by the UN. So, I mean, how do you, yeah. yeah, this is not a kind of conventional government that you can recognize. And um, so I don't, I, I don't see, you know, maybe the Chinese, maybe the Pakistanis, mm-hmm. but yeah, and that's it. When we talk about strategic level blunders um, and we talk about Bagram, we talk about embassies, we talk about having some historical precedent with which to make decisions. Um, we have December of 2001, which you talk about in your, in your book as being a, really a pivotal moment in our involvement in Afghanistan because we have bin Laden in, in Tora Bora. I think there are 70-ish special operators, CIA-type uh, covert paramilitary operators on the ground right there. There's 100 journalists. And then there are different Afghan factions that we are on our side because probably we're paying them at this point. We're the stronger warlord at this point in their in their eyes. Um, but bin Laden escapes into uh, wherever he goes next. And uh, the people on the ground are asking for reinforcements. They're asking for Marines who could have been sent in, 10th Mountain Division who could have been sent in to block that escape route, route out of an area that bin Laden knew very well. Um, and at the same time, we have uh, George Bush being briefed on Iraq and a shift in focus before we have our five-meter target, bin Laden, uh, where we have him yeah. pinpointed there. Um, so obviously that's going to be studied for quite some time and is a, a huge blunder. But uh, from that time, from mid-December of 2001, and you you touch on it briefly in the book because there's not that much information about where he goes from two, that December of 2001 uh, to uh, is it 2005, 2006, when he ends up in, in Abbottabad? What, in your research and what you, what you know thus far, have you pieced together uh, where his journey yeah. in those years? Yeah, um, there, is, there is some information now, and it, and it comes uh, partly from the Pakistani government uh, official uh, uh, kind of investigation that was uh, leaked to Al Jazeera in 2014, uh, and partly from some other information, including from Zawahiri himself. So, Bin Laden does something very smart at the Battle of Tarbara. We now know he left on December 12, 2001, which is right as Tommy Franks has been briefed, uh, Rumsfeld has been briefed by Tommy Franks about the Iraq war plan. So he disappears at 11 p.m. on December 12, 2001. Instead of going to Pakistan, which is what most people would expect him to do, he goes into Afghanistan deeper, and he goes into Kunar, which, as you know, is a heavily forested, mountainous, 
excellent place to avoid detection from satellites, drones, whatever. He spends a year there. Then he goes to Peshawar across the border, big Pakistani city, spends very little time there, uh, meets, I think, one of his wives there, two of his wives. Then he goes into Swat, which is a beautiful Switzerland-like area of Pakistan in 2002 to 2003. Um, and then he goes to Haripur, which is a very obscure provincial city in northern Pakistan from 2003 to 2005. He has four kids, by the way, while he's on the run. His wife, his young Yemeni wife, has these four kids. They, When she goes to these ho- hospitals in Pakistan, they present her as di- deaf and dumb. Because why would a clearly Arab woman be ho- having babies in these like obscure provincial cities in Pakistan? It wouldn't make much sense. So, But to avoid those... She pretends she's deaf and dumb. She has fake uh, identification papers. Um, and and then he arrives in Abbottabad in October of 2005. He has, uh, there was a huge earthquake, you may recall, in Kashmir in October mm. of 2005. And so there's a lot of chaos around that time. And he, the house has been built then, which is kind of good cover for new people moving in. And I, I think by the end of the year, the house is built and he moves in and yeah, you know, he's he's there for five and a half years before he's killed. I mean, it, it's amazing that he got to that he moved all those times and, uh, and 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 anyway. But it just goes to show that you can you can stay on the run, and we have plenty of examples of people people doing that. And I want to be respectful of your time. I know I've already kept you over, but I'm so uh, fascinated with your <laughs> with your background and all the time you put into studying this. Um, so. So as a couple more questions, if you, if you have time, um, tell me about uh, Gina Bennett at the, at the state department and the role she played in, uh, in all of this, because it, it's, it's so fascinating to me that someone who didn't even come into the state department as an analyst to begin with, she's moved over fairly quickly when they recognize her potential. Um, but, but yeah. her, and then how that moves into the the sisterhood and the, the Bay and the, uh, Alex station and just how that all of evolves really a grassroots type of a type of a movement at the, at the CIA and throughout the intelligence community. Yeah. So Gina, uh, graduated from university of Virginia, Virginia in 1988. A week later, she's at the state department as a clerk typist after two months, uh, her boss says, you know, basically, you know, you're wasting your time here. Let's, I'll promote you. You can become an intelligence analyst. She does become so now she notices that, you know, the cold war is over. So CIA is like, yeah, their main enemy is gone. Uh, but she notices that there is kind of an unexpected uh, result of the Cold War, which is these Afghan Arabs, and they're joining groups in Algeria and Bosnia and Chechnya, and they're getting involved in in violence. And she's tracking them, and no one else really is. And she's, you know, she's in you know, she's very early twenties. Pan Am one hundred three blows up when she's, you know, and and that affects her because a lot of the victims, thirty five of the victims were Syracuse University students who are not much older than her, and she's dealing with the families. And anyway, this all had a big impact on her. And so terrorism, anti-terrorism, became kind of her her avocation, and she's still at the agency today. Uh, so her entire career has been, you know, at this, um, and she, I'm sure she's probably going to retire next year, um, and. But so she began writing memos, classified memos to people in the State Department about this guy bin Laden in 93 and Al-Qaeda. Um, and in 95, she sets up an interagency task force of the, the few people who care about this. And they get together to talk about this issue. And eventually she moves over to the CIA. You mentioned Alex Station. So that was founded and that started in early 96. It was most, mostly women led by Mike Schroer, but there were women, Jennifer Matthews, who was killed by Al-Qaeda, triple agent, 
and host in 2000, uh, you know, many years after 9 11, and others. Um, and yeah, they were all very you know, preoccupied with the bin Laden threat. Um, and, you know, of course they were right. <laughs> and on 9 11, Gina Bennett is pregnant with her fourth kid. She's, uh, you know, discussing the assassination of Akim Shah Massoud. Is she going to work? Some of you have already discussed. They were like trying to work out why that happened uh, and what it meant. And uh, the counterterrorist center at CIA was the only, CIA is evacuated except the counterterrorist center. So they're the people who know the most about this. And so everybody stays at their desk, including Gina Bennett. Mike Shoyer volunteers to stay. He's been sort of shuffled aside for reasons that um, he, he was essentially too anti Bin Laden. Yeah. He was. He, he got banished to the library, I think, or he used his he time to continue his studies. Well, he did. He wrote he, he wrote a, what became a book about Bin Laden, but also became an 80-page briefing about Bin Laden that was very useful immediately after 9-11, where he was trying to work out what Al-Qaeda was. So, so there's, there was this group of the agency that really, the CIA that really was focused on Bin Laden. There were also people at the White House who were concerned about him, Richard Clark and others, and then also people at the FBI field office in New York. John O'Neill, others, um, uh, who, but the, the group of people who were focused on this before 9 11 was not large. And, and certainly before the embassy attacks in 98, it was, it was tiny. Yeah. You talk about it in the, in the Manhunt documentary. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, but uh, there's a couple of things that happened during that time frame when Alex Station is stood up and you have these people that are focused on this, on this threat. Maybe others aren't listening to them. Uh, as you said, Michael gets banished to the, to the library at one point, but um, but there are opportunities to take Bin Laden off the board, and there are people at the agency that are are pushing for this, that are making the the case for this. Um, what would later become known as extraordinary rendition. Uh, there's an option that um, uh, I don't think ever makes it to Bill Clinton's desk, but makes it almost to Bill Clinton's desk. And you had a lot of people at the agency trying to uh, to promote this uh, going into Afghanistan and, and getting him out early. Um, of course, there's the, uh, the the cruise missile strike in Sudan and on coast of training camps and the unintended consequences of that, which makes him Bin Laden a celebrity. There's coal where we don't respond, which also has an unintended consequence of reinforcing what Bin Laden already thinks of the United States as essentially a paper tiger when he thinks back to Beirut and looks at Somalia and these other examples that he, he points to. Um, but uh, these missed opportunities uh, to take him off the board, what Becomes of Al Qaeda if he is taken out in say like 1998. Um, does uh, does it dissolve? Does it? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. I mean, I think if he was, uh, I think if he was captured or killed in 98, he would be 9/11 um, in the path because you know that was really his strategic. That it was his idea, and he selected the right people to do it. Unfortunately, and um, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Was the operational commander of 9/11 had an idea like this, but he couldn't do it himself. He, did, he needed, and they needed to recruit 19 suicide hijackers. They needed $500,000. They needed, you know, like a bunch of things that Halashay Muhammad just didn't have access to. He needed, and so, might there have been other attacks in the United States by jihadists? Yes. Uh, I mean, there was already the first Trade Center attack, but would there have been anything on the scale of 9/11? I doubt. Um, I mean, only Bin Laden had the kind of the organization and the ideas and the inclination capability to do it. So I think it, yeah, yeah I think it, it would have been different. And Mike Troyer, who you mentioned, you know, he's, 
we always said this guy's going to kill thousands of Americans one day, and unfortunately, he was correct. Um, and um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, it. And, and, and there's this memorandum of notification, and I got into this in my my last book, The Devil's Hand, because I, I wanted to go into the history of uh, of uh, the, the church hearings and uh, different things that the CIA has done over the years. But in 1998, there's, there's a really interesting thing that happens. Uh, I think it's on Christmas or Christmas Eve. Um, this notification to kill Bin Laden. Um, and it's still classified, but it's been seen by two commissions, I believe, the 9-11 Commission, some people have seen it, and then a CIA inspector general has seen it as well. And both of those came mm -hmm. to different conclusions. Uh, I believe some at the White House thought that this is an actual notification that gives the agency the authority to go and remove bin Laden from the board. But the CIA takes it as, oh, no, we can capture him. So everything has to be around capture. And if in the process of that capture, something goes awry, then we can we can kill him. So it, it's very interesting that you have this big bureaucracy and these two different understandings of what this means. That And we don't know because it's still classified, so we can't make our own determination. Yeah. But we have two different semi-independent uh, uh, groups that have seen it and uh, came to different conclusions on it. Yeah, and I mean, I think you summarized the issue very well. And and one, I quote Cover Black in the book, who was the head of the CIA Counterterrorist Center on 9-11. He said, he, I mean, he actually spoke in it. There's a very good History Channel series, which I really recommend to anybody who wants the road to 9-11, uh, which was uh, it's probably a couple of years old now. It's six hours, and it's, it's very thorough. And well, well, actually, I was a consultant to it, but that doesn't mean that now, right. <laughs> I should disclose that. But I mean, they made, it's, it's very well done. And Cobra Black says, look, if, ben, if Bill Clinton wanted to kill Osama bin Laden, he should have just sent us a note saying, kill bin Laden, signed <laughs> President Bill Clinton. <laughs> right. I read that. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of feel like, okay. Because, um, I mean, you know, the government is full of lawyers and they love right. you know, legally. I mean, it, would have, it clearly was. I mean, the CIA interpreted it as being very ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And White House felt that it wasn't ambiguous. And you know, that somewhere in there, the truth lies. And, you know, uh, but, you know, certainly you mentioned the CIA inspector general. When when he filed the report, he talked to a lot of the people at the agency and they all felt like that unless it was in the course of a real capture operation, they couldn't just go out and just arbitrarily kill him, which is strange because, of course, Bill Clinton did try and kill him with the cruise missile strike. Right. Uh, and that, those just didn't work. So anyway, but, it's it's a what if, and then you know President George W. Bush issues another memorandum of notification. I think it's on September seventeenth, and it's I think it I, we have I haven't seen it. It's, I, I think it's still classified, highly classified, but I think it's very unambiguous about you know, right. not only killing Bin Laden, but anybody in Al Qaeda or I mean I don't know, a secret prison. It basically is the allows allowed the agency a lot of leeway to do the things we know that it did. Right. Right, which is fascinating as well that you talk about in the book about the enhanced interrogations and uh, black sites and drones, which you wrote another book on and how uh, uh, from the Abbottabad documents, we know that that is something that uh, Al-Qaeda as an organization, Bin Laden in particular, was very concerned about. But uh, I know I've kept you over time, um, but uh, last couple of questions as we're talking about okay. Al-Qaeda more generally, um, is defeating an organization like Al-Qaeda possible or is the focus more on the management of that threat? Because what we're really talking about is... Uh, destroying an ideology, destroying an idea. And uh, you talk about this, my last thing I'll read from the, the book here, because I think everybody needs to go and buy this and read it. But you wrote uh, that killing bin Laden didn't kill his ideas, which lingered on among Al-Qaeda's affiliates in Afghanistan, Iraq, North Africa, Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen. 
and they also lived on among Islamic militants around the globe, magnified by the internet, where bin Laden remained an inspirational figure to every new generation of jihadists. And then going down here a little further, you see Al-Qaeda was part of a fourth wave of religious terrorism driven by Islamist militancy that began in the 80s with the establishment of Ayatollah Khomeini's regime in Iran and with the arrival of the Afghan Arabs fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. This wave was likely to last longer than previous terrorism waves because it was, in the mind of the believers, sanctioned by God, and it's hard to abolish God. That's an incredible passage because it really you know, sums up what you're trying to do here um, when you declare yeah. a war on a tactic. Um, like how do you destroy an idea or, or an ideology? Well, these ideologies can die out. I mean, anarchism died out. Marxism this country died out. I mean, they just die out of their own badness over time. And I, I think that is what's going to happen. But I think defeating them is, is uh, defeat is a big verb. You, you management is, you know, I think you can manage a threat so that it's not an issue, uh, you know, big national security issue. Trying to just end something completely. You know, I mean, there's always going to be people in the idea with bad ideas, people in the world who are going to adopt these ideas for one reason or another. You can't destroy all of them. There's just the resources involved would be too much. It's, it's not even really that necessary. What you need to do is manage a problem so it doesn't become, you know, a national security issue. And there's still, you know, Marxists somewhere in the world, and there's, it's not a national security issue in the United States anymore. Um, so that, 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 and of course, it's hard as a politician, it's hard to say, well, we're just going to manage this thing so it's not a, you know, it, it's much easier to say we're going to defeat right. it and it's going to be over. But I don't think it is going to be, look, we've got another iteration of this in Afghanistan, we've already discussed with the Taliban, how that will shape out, we just don't really know. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to, you know, it, 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 it's important for us to focus on our defenses. So, and then it's important for us to have a relatively good offensive capability, whether it's special operations or special forces or drone warfare or cyber warfare. Um, but I think if our goal is just to totally extirpate this kind of these groups and these ideologies, that's too much. And some of these groups don't really threaten us, slash very piper big problem for India. It's not really that big a problem for the United States. Uh, you know, if it, we, our goal can't be going out and finding everybody in the world who has these ideas and trying to how to capture or kill them. It's just that it's, it's not necessary. We can also make the it problem worse. <laughs> and it probably would make, uh, it's, it's too resourceful. So, and you know, we've done a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. I mean, since 9-11, the United States has been, you know, what, what we have is a domestic extremism problem with right-wing terrorists, jihadi terrorists, uh, you know, so, uh, and that people are here, you know, they, they're already here. It's like they, they, they're radicalizing here. They don't have to come into the country. So, and that is not an existential problem, but it's a, it's a problem. Uh, on 9-11, people came in, basically we've made it so much harder for people to get on planes. We have a whole apparatus, including what the, who you work for, that was, you know, it's done a pretty effective job yeah. of making this longer. Yeah, the no-fly list, I think before been, 9-11, you talk about it, it's in the teens, and then it jumps up quite dramatically yeah, yeah. after that. And then the the tide list, which uh, uh, which is something that I think a senator slipped up and told us how many uh, people are on that list, which is secondary screenings um, a few a few years back. Right. So that's one and a half minutes. So yeah, so Senator Feinstein, uh, the number of people on the no-fly list is classified, and she, she slipped up and said it was 81,000. So on 9-11, it was 16. So I mean, there's like, and that's just one of mm-hmm. many I mean, we have a multi-layered defense. Yeah. It's not just one thing. It's it's 
A, it's the offensive capability of special operations, SEALs, et cetera, and drones, cyber warfare, and defenses, TSA, DHS, National Counterterrorism Center, Joint Terrorism Task Forces, and we've got a lot of, you know, it's, it's, it's a layered defense. Mm-hmm. And it's very unlikely that, you know, anybody can get all the way through those those layered defenses. Yeah, I think there's a distinct possibility in sometimes making a problem worse. Um, and I think we've done it a few times over the years. Hopefully we've learned um, from those experiences. But um, yeah. quickly before I let you go, what do you think Al-Qaeda has learned from the last 20 years, in particular from bin Laden's death? Did the organization, sometimes when a leader or somebody is killed in an organization, it can make it stronger because they learn from it. Um, it doesn't seem like that's the case here, but I'm not I'm not sure. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. What did they take away yeah. uh, from the last 20 years, in particular, bin Laden's death? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, like the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria seems to have whether they've learned or they just adapted or whatever, I mean, they're they're more of a local jihadi group with you know some ability to control territory. We've seen that also with Al Qaeda in Yemen, although that's not the case so much today. We saw that with Al Shabaab and Somalia. I mean, these groups are basically they kind of abandoned the, the let's attack the United States. It's like the costs of that are too high, or even attacking in the West in general, and they've gone back to either because they've been forced to or because they've they realize they're smart or both. Just to, to attack the local enemies, whether that's the Assad regime in Syria or um, you know, the Houthis in, in Yemen or whatever. So I think if they've learned anything, it's that you know, attacking the United States is not smart, attacking the West is not smart. Uh, but you know, ISIS didn't learn that lesson. Um, and so not all these affiliates or spin-off groups have learned that lesson, but I think some have. And I mean the ones that have survived, it'll be the ones that have really focused on the local conflicts. <clears throat> and Al-Qaeda in Syria, which has gone by a variety of different names, you know, it, it's a relatively strong group because it isn't engaged in anything that really Bin Laden was interested in, except, you know, because he key to the day he died, one of the attacks on the United States. And, and never saw that really, really come to fruition. Yeah. Um, so right now you're Center for the Future of War at Arizona State University. I mean, it sounds fantastic. If I was in college, I would never leave that uh, that department. Um, mm-hmm. But um, what are you doing there? What are you working on now? And then, uh, and as a follow-on, when you're doing those classes, or when you're when you're when you have a chance to talk to the next generation of, of military leaders, whether it's somebody, maybe it's a an ROTC class or a West Point class or whatever it, it might be, or maybe people that are going into the agency, going into the State Department, um, future leaders, military strategists. What's your message to them based off what you've learned over the last? 30 years or all your years of experience, what, what do you hope that they take forward uh, as leaders uh, of the next generation? Well, I don't, I mean, I just, I, um, I don't like try and sort of tell people what to, how they should be or how, I mean, I, I do think the study of history is useful. Um, you mentioned history sometimes rhymes, uh, quoting Mark Twain, Mark Twain. I think, uh, you know, I think a deep, uh, some understanding of history is, is, is absolutely necessary for any of the things you've just mentioned. Um, and, you know, in my own life, I mean, I just like, if I'm talking about my career, you know, it's like, it's been a series of happenstances and like, you know, there was no master plan, you know, um, but history has a way of intervening often, uh, you know, like nine 11 changed a lot of people's lives. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, but, but, you know, and in all sorts of different ways, and COVID has changed our lives in all sorts of ways. And I think, you know, I think an understanding of history does allow you perhaps to be 
I don't know. It, I, I studied history at university, so I'm, I'm inclined to think it's a useful activity. Yes, I believe so. I, mean, um, I, I concur. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, um, you know, and I, I think that, uh, so, but I, I don't really like have some sort of overall master narrative to when I'm talking to my students. I, I do, I, I, I do, I, I am, I, I am not, I don't believe I grew up as a Catholic. I don't believe that, um, you know, that the world is always heading in the right direction, that the, the history has a direction that's always going towards a better future. I, I base that. I have a kind of slightly more tragic view of history of bad things happen. Um, and, and, and I think if there's a lesson of history is that bad things happen and will continue to happen and that human nature is kind of a pretty stable for both for good and for ill. And, and it, you know, look at, I mean, this is, can you think of a group of, if you go back to, eight years, you know, Facebook was going to be the kind of promised land and social media was going to like make the world a better place. Well, none of that, all of that turned out to be untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and social media companies, and you know, maybe it's like the public pendulum swung back too far, uh, but any kind of technological advance, whether it's the railways or social media is going to have good effects and bad effects because human nature is very stable and can do both good and bad with whatever the technology is available. So if I had a overall message, that would be my, <laughs> My general message, which is what I've learned, I think, from history, which is, um, you know, it, it is tempting to kind of, I think, particularly if you're American, and I'm talking from Washington, D.C., and I, I was born in America, and my kids are American, my wife's American, spent a long time in England when I was a kid. Uh, but, you know, I think Americans tend to want to, and maybe it's less so true, true today, but I think Americans want to, you know, there's a city on the hill and we're moving towards it. Well, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't believe that. Uh, not because I'm not an optimistic person, but because I think we're capable of making lots of mistakes. And uh, you know, that's just yeah, an incompetence is a better explanation of all human activity than anything else. Unfortunately, I think you may be you may be right. Um, but uh, and unfortunately, it looks like this like social media and the promises that we or the expectations and the hopes that we had for it twenty years ago, ten years ago, um, have have ended up doing the opposite, uh, dividing us, making it a lot easier to not spend time in the pages of a, of an important book, but instead to retweet something that's been tweeted by someone who also didn't put the time uh, energy and effort into really understanding the nature of whatever the issue is that they're, that they're talking about. So, um, so thank you so much for, for writing this, writing all these, these other books. I mean, they, you might, you might not think about it cause you're so busy all the time, but, uh, but it has contributed so much to our understanding of the world for people that are going it that are in the military, people that are in in government service at in different different levels of different agencies. Um, but uh, you really have had a huge impact on an entire generation of warfighters, um, entire a generation of intelligence people. And uh, and I want to thank you for doing that. And and I want to thank you for spending so much time with me today. Since it's been such an honor well, to be able to talk to you. Thank you for reading these books and thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So and really quickly, what is next? Is there a, uh, are you going to take a breath after, after writing this and reflecting on everything else that you, that you've done to be able to write, uh, this uh, book? What's next? Taking, I'm taking a breath. I'm taking a breath. <laughs> Another wise decision. Amazing. Well, <laughs> thank you so much thank again much, for, uh, for being here and, uh, and take care and, and, uh, keep it up. I, I, uh, I'll be, I'll be following along. Welcome to the gear highlights section the Danger Close podcast brought to you 
by Schnee's Boots. Now, I've been using Schnee's Boots for a little over a decade, I think. And uh, as you can tell, if you're watching this on YouTube, there's some miles on these. I've used them in Alaska, in Utah, in Colorado, and uh, I absolutely, Montana, absolutely love these boots. If you followed me for a while, you've heard me talk about them before, seen uh, me wearing them in some pictures. And uh, these guys right here, these are the granites. And these are the first ones that I got. And they fitted me at uh, either Safari Club International or Dallas Safari Club and just fell in love with these boots. There's no middleman with these guys. So they are made in a factory in Italy. And that allows uh, you to get a lot more for your boot, a lot more for your money, a lot more boot for your money. That's what I'm going for right there uh, because there's nobody else in that supply chain, Italy to Schnee's in Montana to you. And you can always call them anytime. Hey, I'm going on this kind of a hunt. What kind of a boot do you recommend? Because they have a lot uh, of boots out there. I think I have eight to 10 and my wife has a couple as well. Uh, but these granites have been a constant companion. These are the same ones that I got all those years ago. Absolutely love these boots. And then these guys right here, these, I think these are called the Hunter twos and love these insulated and, uh, snow muck slush. Just absolutely love these boots. These are some of my favorites right here. Uh, these get daily wear. I think these are called the Montanas, but uh, I just got a new pair uh, that just came in the other day. But these guys I've been wearing for, I think, two or three years now. And this is daily wear. You can tell there's a bunch of dirt on there that's dried now that it's uh, it's springtime here. But uh, wear these pretty much all winter. Love these boots right here. And then these guys, these are the Hunter pull-ons. And since we moved to the new house, um, then these guys have been, uh, have worn these every day throughout the winter because the snow is a little, um, a little deeper out here where we are right now. So I wore these pretty much every day throughout the winter. Absolutely love these things. So, uh, Schnees, thank you so much for, uh, man, all these years of amazing boots and check them out online, uh, Schnees and they have a bunch of other great stuff on there. Visit them in Bozeman, give them a call, talk to them about your needs for your particular hunt and they'll point you in the right direction. Awesome. And then, uh, I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up right here. Uh, so when you, sh when you shop there at Schnees.com and you spell that S C H N E E S com. Make sure you use the promo code Jack21, J-A-C-K-21. And then you'll save 10% off a pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. So definitely do that. Jack21. And these handmade boots, they do sell out very quickly. So grab yours today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. And once again, that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com and promo code Jack 21. Well, because I had Peter Bergen on, whose new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, is out now, and you should definitely read. It's absolutely fascinating looking back uh, for him on the last few decades of work in terrorism, uh, specifically studying Osama bin Laden, having talked to him uh, in an interview that he did in 1997. Um, anyway, fascinating. Definitely get this book read it as soon as you can uh, so we can get a better understanding of Al-Qaeda, uh, where it's been, where it's going, and how we can better address it going forward. So, bam, the rise and fall of Osama bin Laden. And because of that, I thought I would just share a couple of these. So this is a blade that I got back in Afghanistan. So pretty cool. Just figured because 
was just talking to Peter Bergen for so long about uh, Afghanistan and Al Qaeda that uh, be good to share those. So anyway, pretty cool, pretty cool to uh, have these memories from from back then. Uh, what else? All right, M A K A I underscore metal underscore works. Check these out. Bam! So you can find that on Instagram. And you can reach out and look at this. That's just a mean looking blade right there. So super cool Navy veteran and uh, awesome guy, super interesting guy. And he's out there making these sweet looking blades and check this out. Oh yeah. Let's uh, open this up. This just arrived. Oh yeah. Oh, it's pretty mean looking too. So yeah, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. That is awesome. I mean, that's just a mean looking piece of metal. And if we're going to be playing around with blades, Adaptive X, which is a part of Dynamis Alliance run by my buddy Dom Rasso. And uh, this is the slash kit. So toss this in a pack, pocket, whatever else, uh, throw in a tourniquet with it. But uh, slash kit, super small. You can tell that is just uh, super tiny. You can throw it anywhere and very useful to have around. So uh, Dom, Adaptive X, Dynamis Alliance, thank you so much. Be prepared. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can find out more about Peter Bergen at peterbergen.com. You can follow him on Twitter at peterbergencnn. And you can get his latest book, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, right now, anywhere books are sold. And I encourage you to go back and read everything else that he has written as well. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. You can go to officialjackcar.com for the blog, find out more about the books, link to the merchandise site, which is Jack Carr USA. And if you like what you heard or watched, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, stay safe, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.